Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Truth and Justice Season 14 Reply Brief. This is Part 13, and this episode is all about alternate theories and suspects. And I'll tell you up front that this one got my blood boiling. And that's because in Part 13, Brett and Alice directly attack the work that I specifically have done on this case. They completely misrepresent the facts as usual, and then say that the conclusions that I have drawn from my analysis are absurd, and also that the work I've done on this element of the case is the absolute worst corner of true crime. I'm only telling you that because I'm not going to pretend that their assault on my work didn't bother me. But I'll also tell you that it didn't bother me for the reasons that you might expect. Throughout this series, I have genuinely lost all respect that I ever had for these two. They have over and over again intentionally lied and misled their audience. They have misrepresented facts, and while presenting what they call a detailed factual analysis of the case, they intentionally left out any and all facts from the case file that could actually reveal the truth. In my opinion, these two are absolute trash with zero moral compass. And because I hold that opinion, I could care less about their opinions, of me, my work, or anything else. What got my hackles up is the way that they went about trying to discredit me. They don't state the facts and draw a different conclusion. Instead, they do what they always do. They lie, they misstate the evidence, and twist the facts to land on a very purposeful false narrative. We'll get to all of that here in just a little bit. The purpose of this episode is 100% to eliminate any and all possible alternative suspects and theories. I told you that several episodes ago when I began picking up on their strategy. They know that they can't prove that Adnan is guilty, so instead they have spent all these hours playing a game of elimination. That's all this entire shit show has been. Them trying to convince you that there is no other possible conclusion, and therefore, by default, Adnan must be guilty. And their part 13 is all about putting the nail in that coffin. In this episode, the prosecutors address and claim to debunk several theories. Those theories are that Hay was killed by a random serial killer, she was killed by Alonzo Sellers, she was killed by Bilal, she was killed by Jay, and she was killed by Don. I'm going to run through the first few as a batch because I actually agree with Brett and Alice that none of these scenarios are very likely. So that's going to be the format today. In this first half of today's episode, rather than go through all the reasons why I don't personally believe Sellers, Bilal, serial killers, or Jay are reasonable suspects, I'm going to share with you my breakdown and profile of the crime. I'm going to tell you, based on the evidence and my personal understanding of behavioral analysis, what type of person or persons that I would be looking for if it were me running the investigation. Then we're going to do a bit of a deep dive into lividity because they touch on it in their episode. And then we're going to talk about Don. Now, when I started this series, I really didn't want to get into Don at all or any alternate suspects for that matter. But now, Brett and Alice have gone there, and they've made enough of a mess of things that I think it's necessary to clear things up. So with all that being said, let's get started with the profile. We'll begin by figuring out what we actually have to work with, actual facts that are not in dispute. As far as we know, Hay does not have any obvious risk factors. We have no evidence that she was a drug user and she wasn't drunk or drinking at the time she was killed. She wasn't involved in any illegal activities that anyone is aware of, and therefore we cannot assume that she had any reason whatsoever to intentionally come in contact with any known dangerous people. 
The only risk factor that I can assign to Hay, sadly, is the same risk factor that applies to all women. And that is men. As much as it saddens me to say it, the facts are the facts. Most women who are murdered were killed by a current or former intimate partner. That is the case with the overwhelming majority of murdered women. Then we also have to consider general bad actors, those motivated by a sexual assault or robbery. From what I can see, those aren't Hay's risk factors. So now let's look at the manner in which Hay was killed. She was hit on the head and strangled. What can this tell us about the killer? Personally, I believe that Hay was unconscious when she was strangled. I think that she suffered some kind of blunt force trauma to the head which knocked her out, and then the killer manually strangled her until she died or smothered her with something. I say that because there is no evidence that Hay was restrained, no ligature marks, no bruising on the wrist, nothing, which means that her hands would have been free while she was being strangled. When that's the case, usually you'll find a couple things in the autopsy. Scratch marks around the throat and oftentimes a lot of the killer's DNA underneath the victim's fingernails. The natural reaction to something cutting off your air supply is to fight for your life to get it off. And there's no evidence that Hay did that. No indication at all that she was clawing at the hands that were killing her. As you all know, I'm not a pathologist, so take my opinion with a grain of salt. And also, I do want to take this opportunity to let you know that probably for the next 10 minutes or so, this is going to be very graphic. So I want to give you a trigger warning or if somebody just doesn't want to hear about details of the murder, then you, you may want to skip ahead until after the ad break. But I think this stuff is all necessary to understand what happened here. So moving on, from what I see in the autopsy, I believe wholeheartedly that whoever killed Hay knocked her out and then strangled her to death while she was unconscious. And to me, this points to the fact that this murder was not planned. When someone plans to kill someone, they usually will bring a weapon. Strangulation equals desperation. Something went wrong here. Whoever killed Hay did not intend to do so when they met with her that day, in my opinion. Sadly, I believe that Hay was killed out of a combination of fear and rage. Someone snapped and hit her so hard or pushed her so hard into something that it knocked her out. I don't think the offender planned even that. I think that the offender was overtaken with rage and then immediate fear of facing consequences for assaulting Hay. And while she laid there unconscious, they stole her life away. And that is my first indication that Hay's killer was someone with a known personal relationship to her. If I'm right about the murder being a reaction to an unplanned assault, I don't think that a random attacker would have the need or desire to kill her. You kill someone who you've just assaulted because they know who you are. A random person off the street would simply flee with little fear of ever being identified. Next, we move on to the moving of the car and the body. Almost without question, there were at least two people involved in the post-offense cover-up. There had to be. We have no reason to believe that Hay was killed in the place where her body was found. Although that can't be ruled out, we just don't have any evidence suggesting that she would have been going to that particular spot in Leakin Park to meet someone. Most likely, her body was moved to that location to be buried. We also have no reason to believe that Hay was killed at the location where her car was found. As far as we know, she has no connection to that neighborhood, which means that her car was moved to that spot. 
which also means that whoever moved it there most likely needed a ride after ditching the car. The offender likely wouldn't move the car to a place that they're connected to, so odds are that they themselves don't live in that neighborhood. One way or another, at some point the killer needed at least a ride. So let's work through a couple of scenarios as to how this might have went down. First of all, the offender moved Hayes' car for a reason. Almost always when we see this done, it's because the car is located at a place that can be directly tied back to the offender. For example, if Hay went to meet someone at their house and that's where the murder took place, the killer's not going to leave the car sitting in their driveway. They have to move it. Another example would be if Hay met someone at a hotel or a motel. In order to get a room, the killer would have to register the room and present their ID. You can see how that plays out. Hay turns up missing, the car is found at a hotel, the police check the registrations and find someone with a known relationship to her had a room there that afternoon. The offender would have to get the car out of there. There had to be a reason to move the car. And the only thing that makes sense to me is that the car was left where Hay was killed and that location in some way could be tied back to the killer. This is one of the reasons I've never bought the Best Buy story. If Adnan or anyone had killed Hay in a remote part of the Best Buy parking lot, there would be no reason to or explanation for moving her car. If you leave it in the parking lot, it's going to be found eventually. If you leave it at the park and ride, same story. Or if you leave it in the parking area on Edgewood, you get the point. The car wasn't dumped in a lake never to be found again. The killer did not take great care to ensure that no one would ever discover the car. They just moved it which again indicates that it was moved away from a location that was directly connected to the killer. And at the end of that trip, someone needed to be picked up or they had to walk back to wherever they came from, which in my opinion is unlikely. I think they would move the car as far away as possible. The concealment of Hayes' body is yet another indication that the killer had a known personal relationship with her. Profiling a crime scene begins with the simple concept that every action that the offender takes came from a thought. Even in a panicked, illogical state, actions still require thought to be set in motion. So what we do is work backwards, like we just did with the car. We start with the action, moving the car, and back our way into the reasons for the action, which leads us to the thought process, which leads us to the offender. The car was moved because the original location would lead police to the killer. And who would think that the location of the car would get them caught? Someone who had a known personal relationship to Hay. And the concealment of Hay's body really drives home that theory. Taking the time to move and bury a body is extremely risky. Despite what TV shows might tell you, this is not a common occurrence at all. Even when it would be advantageous to move and conceal a body, Still, in most cases, people don't. In the majority of homicide cases, the first thing an offender does after killing someone is to get the hell away from the body. The knee-jerk reaction to committing an unplanned homicide is to run away. And that element is important in this case. We're going to discuss lividity in a few minutes because it absolutely supports this theory. That being the idea that, to me, the fact that Hay's body was moved and buried likely means that her body was left in a secure place for a period of time before being moved. Again, the typical immediate reaction to murder is to run. 
get away from the body. This case, to me, looks like the offender would have left and then confided in someone with more of a level head who put the plan together to move the car and the body. I'm going to repeat myself a lot here because all of this stuff builds on itself. And all this is just my opinion, by the way. I'm going to be sharing my profile as fact. I just want to be clear that everything I'm saying is my personal belief based on how I view the evidence. So we have an offender with a known personal relationship to Hay. They planned to meet her, but they did not plan to kill her. Something happened that angered the offender to the point of inflicting the blunt force trauma to Hay's head, which rendered her unconscious. The offender then exposed their own fear of being caught by strangling unconscious Hay and killing her. They then ran away, leaving Hay and the car in a location that could easily be connected back to them. This person, the unidentified subject that I just described, would not have the wherewithal to later return to move the body and car. Based on logistics, I believe they had to have help to make the move. And I believe that whoever they brought in to help is someone that they intimately trust. Someone more level-headed, which generally indicates someone more mature. Someone who could stay calm and think through a plan. Which leads us back to Hay's body being buried. There are three basic levels of body concealment I want to talk about, with three different purposes. Number one. Conceal in place. For longtime listeners, think back to season two in Elnora Griffin. Elnora's body wasn't moved. Instead, what the offender did was simply lock the doors, close the blinds, put a towel over the window on the front door, and pull her car behind the trailer so that it couldn't be seen. The effect was to make it appear that Elnora had left for work in the morning. It was a delay tactic. And delaying discovery usually occurs in situations where the offender is not directly connected to the location of the murder, but they do have a known personal relationship to the victim. They know that they'll be a suspect, so they try to delay discovery in order to give them time to create an alibi. Number two, moving or dumping the body. We see this in cases where the offender oftentimes doesn't have a known personal relationship to the victim meaning there's no reason for anyone to consider them a suspect. But the murder took place in a location that is connected to the offender. For example, the offender murders someone in their house. They need to get the body away from their home. These offenders know that once the body's found, they'll be safe. No one would suspect them specifically because they have no known connection to the victim. If this was the situation in Hayes' case, I would have expected her body to be dumped in Lincoln Park not buried, which leads to the third level of concealment, and that's total concealment. Here, the intent is to avoid the body being found at all. Examples are burying a body or dumping it in a lake. In cases like these, in the offender's mind, their only hope of avoiding arrest is for the body to never be found. If there's no body, there's no murder. The hope is usually that investigators will assume that the victim just ran off, left town. Ideally for the offender, the victim will simply live in a missing persons database eternally, forgotten by the investigators, but not their families. And that's the type of concealment that we have here. Hay's body and car were moved away from where she was killed. The offender took on incredible risk and exerted a lot of effort to get the body and vehicle away from the location of the murder, with the intent that Hay's body would never be found. 
This is part of the reason why I think it's at least possible that the car was moved by police from the location where the offender actually ditched it. The place where Hayes' car was found doesn't make sense to me. It's obvious that the goal and intent was for her body to never be discovered. But the car was supposedly found in a place where it was sure to be discovered. And once it was, no one was going to believe that Hay just left it there. It would become immediately obvious that she did not just leave town on her own free will. It wasn't a bus station or a train station or an airport. Somewhere where one could jump to the conclusion that she hopped onto some other mode of transportation to run away. Instead, it was found in a parking area in a neighborhood that Hay had no connection to. Now lastly, let's talk apparent motive. There isn't one. There were no signs of sexual assault. Hay's shirt and skirt were pulled up, but to me that just appears to be the result of her body being dragged by her feet. Some disagree with me and will likely never know, but I can at least say that her clothing was found exactly how I would expect it to be found if she was dragged. Regardless, there is no evidence of sexual assault, no evidence of robbery. There's just no obvious reason for the offender to have killed Hay, which leaves me with the only obvious theory. This was a personal cause homicide. I don't like this phrase, but it's the best I can come up with right now. It was a crime of passion. Unplanned. Something happened during an interaction with Hay and her killer that triggered a violent response. So here's my profile of Hayes' murderer. I believe that she was killed by a male offender, someone that she knew intimately. And I think that the offender believed that people knew that he and Hay were going to be together that afternoon. He knew that he would immediately be a suspect. The murder was completely unplanned. The offender didn't bring any weapons or other means of killing anyone. I think that if you were to look into this offender's behavior both before and after this incident, you'd find that they have an explosive temper. If not with other people, you would at least see it with inanimate objects. The guy who smashes his video game controller when he gets mad, punches holes in the walls. The kind of person who can go from zero to out of control in seconds. The offender has a direct connection to the place where the murder occurred. Either his house or apartment, or a motel room registered in his name. Wherever this happened, he had no choice but to get Hayes' car and body away. I think that the killer had help after the fact. Someone smarter, more sophisticated, and more mature than him. Someone that he knew he could trust without question. I believe wholeheartedly that the person we're looking for met with Hay that afternoon with no intention of killing her. Something went wrong, He snapped and either hit her on the head or hit her head against something so hard that it left her unconscious. Then, in a state of panic, he strangled her to death. Then I think he fled and confided in someone who later became his accomplice. That's the person that developed the plan to move and bury the body and to move the car. And in my heart of hearts, I truly think that her car was originally moved to a location with access to a method of transportation that would make it appear that she had run away. So that's what I think happened. And I think that's the profile of the offender, well, offenders that we're looking for. Which is why I agree with Brett and Alice that it's extremely unlikely that Hay was killed by a serial killer or any random person off the street. They also touch on the idea that Jay could be responsible for Hay's death, but I don't believe that either. Despite what they may say about the cell phone evidence, 
it's very obvious to me that whoever had that phone on January 13th didn't kill Hay. The timing and the locations just don't work for Adnan or Jay or anyone else. And lastly, for all the reasons that I've just laid out, I don't think that Alonzo Sellers is a viable suspect either. But what's interesting about Sellers is that Brett and Alice use him as a way to explain away the most obvious physical evidence that exonerates Adnan in this entire case. The one thing that without question scientifically proves that Jay's entire story is made up. The Lividity. Right after this break. We've touched on lividity a few times throughout the series, but I haven't really discussed a very important element of the evidence. For those of you who don't know, there were a series of what's been described as double diamond-shaped pressure marks on Hayes' shoulders. This is a really big deal. I know that a lot of you already know this, but for those who don't, here's a quick science lesson. Lividity, or liver mortis, is the pooling of blood after someone dies. Lividity is dependent upon gravity. The blood in the body shifts down to the lowest point, and for the first 6 to 12 hours, lividity can shift. Meaning that if, say, a body was laying on its back for 3 hours, the blood would start to pool on the back and start to discolor the skin on the back. But if you then flip the body over, the blood would continue to shift and would end up settling on the front of the body, discoloring that skin instead. Somewhere in the range of generally 8 to 10 hours, 6 to 12 under certain extreme circumstances, the lividity will fix. The skin will become discolored from the blood pooling, and it doesn't matter what you do with the body after that, it won't shift anymore. So if a body is positioned face down for 12 hours, the front of the body will become discolored from the pooling blood, and even if you flip it onto its back, the lividity is locked in at that point. The front of the body will stay discolored even if you move the body onto its back. The lividity is then fixed. This is extremely important in Hay's case because according to Jay and the state's timeline so that they can use the Leakin Park pings at 7.09 and 7.16 p.m. to put Jay and Adnan at the burial site, Hay was killed around 3 p.m. and she was buried at 7 p.m. That would mean that she was placed into the grave and her body never moved again four hours after she was killed. Since it's impossible for lividity to fix in four hours, that would mean that Hay's blood would then pool to the lowest parts of her body after she was buried, and it would fix four to six hours later after the burial in the burial position. But as we talked about in earlier episodes, that's absolutely not the case here. Hay was buried on her right side, slightly twisted, and her right hip was the lowest point on her body, which means that the lividity we should see in the autopsy photos and report would be fixed on her right hip and right side. But in reality, we see in the autopsy photos, and it's noted in the autopsy report, that Hay's body had frontal fixed lividity. There was even distribution of liver mortis across the front of Hay's upper torso. So what that means is that her body was laying in the prone position, face down, for a minimum of six hours, more likely eight to ten hours minimum, before she was moved to the burial site and buried on her right side. The lividity had to have fixed on her body while she was face down somewhere. This absolutely destroys the state's timeline. It obliterates it. Now, Brett and Alice try to laugh this off and explain it away, but there's no arguing it. It's science. We have the original autopsy clearly noting the frontal lividity, and it's very visible in the autopsy photos. 
But Brett and Alice come at this from two different directions. One, they claim that Hayes' torso was actually flat to the ground, despite all of the reports saying that she was on her right side and the crime scene photos showing she was on her right side. They say that while her hips were perfectly perpendicular to the ground and her left arm was behind her back and her right arm was in front of her chest with her right hand exposed above the ground, somehow her chest was completely flat. That's just simply not true. And then we have Dr. Lavardi, the expert that the undisclosed team had examined the autopsy report and photos and the crime scene photos, including the photos of Hayes' disinterment. She concluded that based on the lividity and the burial position, Hay could not have been buried in that position within six hours of her death. The fixed lividity proved that she was laying face down somewhere other than that grave for at least six hours before burial. So what we have here is every report from the time of the discovery of Hay's body clearly stating she was buried on her right side and the lividity was fixed and frontal. And we have the photos of Hay's positioning in the grave and the photos of lividity showing her fixed frontal lividity and her burial position, again, being on the right side. And we have an expert medical examiner who also concluded that Hay was on her right side and had frontal lividity. And Brett and Alice ignore all of that and laugh at you if you think that's compelling evidence. What no one has done over all these years is to produce an expert that would refute Dr. Lavardi's finding. None. So that's thing one. Besides the million other reasons why we know that Jay's story is a complete fairy tale, the lividity on Hay's body really seals the deal. If Hay was killed around 3 p.m., she could not have been put in that grave before 9 p.m., period. And by that time, Adnan was all the way over on the other side of town at his mosque and his house talking to Nisha and other people on the phone. But now let's talk about these pressure marks. Put simply, pressure marks are caused by something that's pressing into the skin while lividity is setting in and fixing. For example, if someone died laying on their back, and they were laying on, say, their iPhone, the phone is pressing the skin up. As the blood pools, it will pool around the phone. And once it fixes, 8 to 10 hours later usually, if you look at the purple discoloration on the person's back caused by the lividity, you will see exactly where the phone was that part of the skin would not be stained by the blood. The shape of the phone would be a paler version of the person's normal skin tone. The pressure causes the blood to pool around the object, hence the term pressure marks. In Hay's case, like I mentioned, there are a series of double diamond-shaped pressure marks near her shoulders, which means that for the 6-12 to 12 hours it took for lividity to fix, her body was positioned face down and there were these double diamond-shaped objects under her body, causing the pressure. There is no other explanation. That's what happened. Pressure marks are caused by objects pressing against the skin as lividity fixes. And here's the problem. You can argue about twisting and positioning all you want. The fact is that there was nothing present in that grave that could have made those pressure marks. Period. Hay could not have been in that grave when her lividity fixed, which could not have been any time prior to 9 p.m. at the very earliest. And we know that because there is absolutely nothing in that grave that could have caused those marks. So once again, the people that are accusing you of believing in grand conspiracies say this. The original autopsy was wrong when they noted the frontal lividity. The report from the discovery and disinterment of Hay's body saying that she was on her right side those are also wrong. 
Dr. Lavardi, also wrong. And the photos of the burial site and disinterment? Who are you going to believe? Two crooked prosecutors or your own eyes? Everyone is wrong. Also, everyone at the school is wrong. Everyone had the wrong day. It's completely reasonable to believe that the accomplice who buried the body can't remember where he saw the body. Totally normal for him to give an impossible timeline. Perfectly reasonable for Adnan and Jay to go from being on the phone near Woodlawn to picking up the car, finding the burial site, and dragging Hay's body into the woods in a total of nine minutes. They say, you're the conspiracy theorist. While they appear to be completely unaware of the magnitude of the mental gymnastics they have to go through in order to push their theory. Everyone has to be wrong about everything, including Jay. But we know Adnan is guilty because Jay says so. Now, don't get me wrong. They absolutely know these pressure marks are a huge problem. So this is how they try to get around them in the episode. First, they just don't call them pressure marks. They say they're injuries to the skin. Could have happened at any time. And they slip in. Some people even believe they were caused by some kind of pressure after she was dead. So they take something that we know to be true. These are absolutely, without a doubt, pressure marks that occurred during the fixing of liver mortis, and they confuse the issue. And then step two, they connect the lividity and pressure mark conversation to the conversation about Alonzo Sellers being a suspect. Here's how they do that. For years now, people from all over the world have been trying to figure out what the object was that caused those pressure marks. And the theory that seems to have the most legs is that the marks were created by something called a concrete shoe from a concrete grinding machine. And I have to say that it really does seem like a likely candidate. If you Google double diamond concrete shoe, you'll see what I mean. You can also Google double diamond marks on Hay Lee for comparison. But I'll post a side-by-side picture on the website for you all to take a look at if you don't want to do the Googling. But as I said, this is the closest thing I've found to something that could have actually caused those marks. Then, once the concrete shoe theory came to light, the internet did some digging and found that Alonzo Sellers has a history of working with concrete. Which, of course, led to the theory that maybe he killed Hay and she was left laying in the back of his truck or in his garage somewhere on some of these concrete shoes. Now, that's a big jump from maybe the marks were caused by this tool to Sellers as a suspect. But it's just one of those things that is at least worth noting. But what Brett and Alice do is address the pressure marks while eliminating Sellers as a suspect. And they chuckle about how crazy it is to think that Sellers would, as Brett put it, gently press these tools against Hay's shoulders to make those marks. Because remember, they're not pressure marks. They're some kind of injury to the skin in their reporting. They make it seem silly. Then, still working off the premise that these are injuries and not post-mortem pressure marks, they compare these marks to bite mark analysis, something that has been completely discredited in the courts. And instead of addressing the real issue, which is that something made those marks and that something was not in the burial site, they use the tie-in to sellers as a way to dismiss the marks. They point out how silly it is to use these marks to rope Alonzo into being a suspect. It's the same sleight of hand they always use. They don't want you to look at the actual important aspect, so they shift the conversation over to something that they can discredit. They say things like, if there was nothing tying Adnan to this crime except he owned concrete tools, would you then think he's guilty because of these marks? But that's not the point. First of all, 
We don't know that the marks were caused by concrete shoes. It's just a theory. Secondly, even if they were, we don't know that Sellers owned that type of tool. And lastly, even if he did, surely he's not the only person in Baltimore that owned a set of concrete shoes. It's a theory, nothing more. They put a button on the subject by saying things like, we don't know what caused these marks. They could be from her bra straps, which is absolutely not true. And then my personal favorite, whatever caused these marks could have been something in the grave, because it's not like they sifted through the dirt to look for evidence. 100% they absolutely did sift through the dirt. They were specifically looking for evidence. They found hairs in the dirt. They found red fibers in the dirt. They sifted through it all and were looking for anything that they might be able to use to connect to the killer. And don't think or pretend for a moment that they don't know that. This, in my opinion, is their most pathetic attempt of all at trying to explain away clear evidence that Jay is lying. The Leakin Park pings mean nothing. And Adnan is innocent. I'll say it one more time louder for the people in the back. There was nothing in that grave that could have possibly caused those pressure marks. Which means that Hay was not buried in the 7 o'clock hour. Her body was left somewhere, face down with these double diamond-shaped objects under her shoulders for a minimum of six hours before she was moved to the burial site. That is a fact. For this last segment, as promised, I'm going to address Don as a possible suspect. When I started this series, I truly had no intention of doing so. I said my piece about Don eight years ago and nothing has changed. Unfortunately, Brett and Alice pushed the issue back into the forefront and they lied, manipulated, and misrepresented the situation enough that I feel I at least need to set the record straight. Now, first up, I want to address the elephant in the room for those of you that have been listening since the beginning. Anytime my connection to this case is brought up, the trolls on the internet will always say that I accused Don of murder. For starters, no I didn't. Secondly, I'll explain what actually happened. In 2016, I was speaking at a fundraising gala for Adnan's Legal Defense Fund. There was a Q&A session and someone from the audience asked who I thought killed Hay. Now, if I'm being honest, if I was in that position today, I probably wouldn't have answered the question. I would have said that I don't know who killed Hay, and I would have left it at that. I was inexperienced and far more reckless than I like to believe that I am today. Instead, what I said is that I don't know who killed Hay, but in my opinion, I think the most likely scenario is that she was killed by her boyfriend, Don. I said that there is at least a circumstantial case to be made that he's responsible. I don't necessarily regret saying it. But like I said, in the same situation today, I wouldn't have. And not for any legal reasons. Anyone is legally allowed to state their own opinion. I didn't say Don killed Hay, 100% that's what happened, although people will suggest that that's what I said. I was asked my opinion, and I gave it. And I clearly stated that it was just a theory and just my opinion. To further expand on the situation, one of the reasons that I felt comfortable stating my opinion was because at that point, everyone, including me, had been protecting Don's identity. I, to this day, have never spoken or written his last name. I've never shared a photo of him, 
nothing. And again, at that point, no one else had either. So the person I was talking about was just a guy named Don who used to work at LensCrafters in Hunt Valley. I knew that he had since moved a long ways away from Baltimore and was living a life completely disconnected from anything to do with this case. So saying that I believe that a guy named Don should be a suspect felt pretty innocuous at the time. Since then, his name, picture, even information about his wife and where he lives has been made public. Not by me, but it has been put out there which of course adds another layer to the situation. I can say that had that been the case when I was asked that question, I definitely wouldn't have answered it. But all of that is really neither here nor there, but I wanted to at least set the record straight because I promise you that if you engage with anyone from the guilty side about this episode, they will surely say that I accuse Don of murder. So now you know that's what actually happened. Moving on, I'm not exactly sure how to approach this. So, Brett and Alice spent quite a bit of time explaining how ridiculous it is for anyone to think that Don might be a suspect in this case. I think the best way forward is for me to lay out the evidence that I think makes a case to not eliminate him without further investigation by authorities. And I'll address the things that Brett and Alice had to say about it along the way. First of all, you all heard my profile. Now, that's just my interpretation of the facts of the case in the profile that I came up with. I'm no expert, and I could certainly be 100% wrong. I believe that the profile and the logic behind it is solid, and that essentially narrows the pool of persons of interest down to Adnan and Don as far as I'm concerned. Don is certainly not eliminated by my profile. And if you remember back to Season 1 when Jim Clemente profiled the case, his profile also didn't eliminate Don. Now next comes the big one, the alibi. The story goes like this. When Don is first interviewed by police, he doesn't mention that he was working that day. The police called Don's dad's house, and they called LensCrafters looking for hay around 7 p.m. on the day she went missing. Now the police didn't know this at the time, or ever actually, that the manager they spoke with at LensCrafters that night was Don's mother's longtime live-in partner, essentially Don's stepmother. So by 7 p.m., two of Don's parents were notified that Hay was missing. Also, Hay was supposed to be at work at 6 p.m. and didn't show up, which his stepmother was aware of. And Don said that his dad gave him the message to call police back at 7 p.m., but he didn't do it. Messages were left for him to call Adcock back, and it wasn't until Adcock made a follow-up call at 1.30 a.m. that he actually spoke with Don, who simply told him that he doesn't know where Hay is and that the last time he spoke with her was on the evening of the 12th the day before she went missing. Now, Don doesn't mention to Adcock that he was working that day, but it should be noted that we don't know if Adcock asked him what he was doing that day, just like he didn't ask Adnan for an alibi on the call that night. Remember, no one knew anything bad had happened to Hay yet. This wasn't an investigation into a murder. Adcock was just trying to find Hay. That being said, there are a couple things that Don left out of this conversation that would have been very relevant. These don't come up, though, until later interviews. Now, there's another interview here by someone named Mandy Johnson. She was a private investigator working for the Anihi group that was hired by Hayes' family. But we don't know exactly when this interview happened. It's not dated. In her interview with Don, she notes that he did not seem concerned about Hay being missing, nor did he seem enthusiastic at all about their relationship. He again says that he saw Hay on the night of the 12th and he talked to her on the phone, but now he adds some new information. Information that he didn't share with Officer Adcock when he called looking for Hay. 
Now Don says that during their date on the night before she went missing, Hay told him that she'd had an argument with her mother earlier that day and that she wanted to go live with her father in California. He said that she would either drive there or leave her car in the satellite parking lot at BWI Airport and fly to California. Now this immediately got my hackles up for two reasons. One, because this is incredibly and oddly specific. He didn't just say she would probably drive or fly there, or even that she would probably leave her car at the airport and fly. He specifically said that she would leave her car in the satellite lot at the airport. This, of course, really jumped out to me when I later saw that the last place that was searched for Hayes' car before it was, air quotes, found, was the satellite parking lot at the airport. But the other reason this grabbed my attention is because it fits perfectly into the behaviors I discussed earlier in the profile. You move and bury a body because you want people to think the victim ran away. You don't want anyone to know that the victim was murdered. And here we have Don offering up the suggestion that she would park at the satellite lot and fly away. And of course, I've never believed that Hay would say that she wanted to live with her father in California because her father doesn't live in California. He was living in Korea. But back to the alibi, again, there's no mention of working that day. Things get even stranger when we see what Don said to Detective O'Shea on the 22nd of January. There's no date on the Nihi Group interview, so we don't know which came first. But we know that he told Mandy Johnson about wanting to go to California. But this is what O'Shea said in his report. Quote, Hay did not indicate to Donald that she was planning to go anywhere. End quote. Although later in the report, it says that Hay had told Don that she spent a summer living in California with her father and that she had said that she would like to live in California, but not that she planned on going there. And here's something that Don didn't mention to Adcock on the night Hay went missing, but he adds it to his story here on the 22nd. He says that Hay had planned to call Don when she got off work that night, but she never did. That just seems like something you would want to tell the police when they call you looking for someone. Also in this interview, we get the first mention that Don was working on the day of the murder. And take note of this date here. You'll see why it's kind of important in a minute. Don first tells the police that he was working on the 13th and this interview on the 22nd. So that's his alibi. Just over a week after the murders, he now says that he was working on the day of the murder until approximately 6 p.m. Don gets eliminated as a suspect on February 1st. O'Shea called LensCrafters to verify his alibi, and the manager reads off Don's time card. He arrived to work at 9.02, took lunch from 1.10 to 1.42, and left work at 6 o'clock. And this is where things get hairy. First, let me address an incorrect statement made by the prosecutors. They say in their episode that the police first pulled Don's time card for the Owings Mill location of LensCrafters, which didn't show him working on that day, and then they pulled the time card for the Hunt Valley location, which confirmed that he was working, just at another location. They tell that story, and it makes sense the way they tell it. But to be crystal clear, the police never pulled any of Don's time cards. The phone call to the Owings Mills manager was the end of their investigation into Don. O'Shea did drive out there three days later just to confirm again with the manager that he was working, and that was it. They never interviewed any other employees, anybody to confirm. They never looked at a schedule, nothing. The manager said he was working, and that was good enough, and the investigation into Don was over. This is what actually happened, which is where all the problems come in. 
After Adnan was arrested and leading up to the trial, the state's attorney, Kevin Urich, figured he better check off this box so that the defense can't call Don's alibi into question at trial. So he subpoenaed Don's time card from LensCrafters. But when he got it, it showed that he was off work on the 13th, which of course was a pretty big fucking problem. Then we get another production from LensCrafters. This one came with a cover letter to Yurik that said, and I'm paraphrasing, basically, per our phone conversation, I did another check using Don's social security number, and I found a second time card. This one shows that he was working. Then in bold letters, it says that the manager of the store is Don's mother. It seems that the person sending the records might have thought something was a bit fishy with all of this. But of course, we're not privy to what was said on the phone conversations, and Yurik definitely didn't look into the situation any further, at least not on the record. Now, I can tell you that back in 2015, I called the location that the Hunt Valley store moved to and spoke with the manager there. And I'll tell you exactly what she told me. She said that she took over managing the store after Don's mom. I asked why Don's mom wasn't working there anymore, and she said, All I can tell you is that after that incident, she was no longer employed here, and I took over. And she wouldn't share any more details than that, nor should she probably have. But I found it interesting that she referred to it as this incident. I don't know if this incident had to do with the time cards I was asking about, or if this incident was Hayes' murder. But either way, after the incident, Don's mom didn't work there any longer, according to this manager. But back to what we were talking about, the police never actually asked for or saw the time cards. They at least didn't take them into their possession. They might have seen them when they went to the store on February 4th, but they didn't collect them. They only made that one phone call and then the stop into the store. And if you're keeping track, the two managers at the two stores in question were Don's mother and his mother's partner, for all intents and purposes, Don's stepmother. And I know that a lot of this is old news for many of you, but we also have a lot of folks listening who are not familiar with all this. So I'm going to try to get through it quick, but I need to go through it all. So let's jump to 2015. Susan Simpson is examining the time cards and notices that the employee ID number is different on the two cards. This, of course, leads to more digging and even more issues arise. So we also have the schedule for the Hunt Valley Lens Crafters for that week. Now, Don's story is, that he was filling in for the other lab tech that day at the Hunt Valley store. But when you look at the schedule, there was never a lab tech scheduled to work those hours on January 13th. In fact, there was never anybody scheduled to work those hours any Wednesday. There was no one for him to fill in for. That's the first problem. Furthermore, the second timesheet also showed Don working on Saturday. But the other timesheet showed him working at the Owings Mill store on that Saturday as well. And the problem is, there was only 23 minutes from the time that he clocked out at the Hunt Valley store until he clocked in at the Owings Mill store. And that store is inside of the mall. So imagine parking lot, walking into the mall, all that. That is not possible. And then Susan noticed that if you add the two time cards together, it would have put Don at over 40 hours, which means he was legally required to be paid time and a half for the overtime. But neither timesheet showed him being paid overtime. None of this made any sense, 
and that was enough to make me really want to know what the hell was going on here. So I started to make phone calls, looking for whoever handled payroll for LensCrafters. I ended up speaking with someone in the payroll division at Luxottica, LensCrafters' parent company. Of course, he told me that he can't comment on any specific questions, but he could answer some general questions about how the system worked. So I told him the situation, and he said, nope, there's no way that's legit. He explained that he had been in his position since the mid-90s. He knows exactly how the system worked in 1999, and he said, quote, if you're looking at two different timesheets for the same person on the same pay period with two different employee ID numbers, one of them is falsified. He went on to explain that Luxottica owns several companies besides LensCrafters, the Sunglass Hut, for example. He said that their system was designed so that employees could bounce around from store to store as needed. There were no physical time cards. The way the system worked is that every employee had a single username and password that they could log into at any Luxottica location. That's how they clocked in and out. You could leave work at LensCrafters and go cover a shift at the Sunglass Hut. All you'd have to do is log into the same interface at both locations. He said that no one had two logins and no one had two employee ID numbers. Now, that's as far as I could get with him, but that wasn't enough. Susan was right. Something was very wrong here. But what was confusing is that these two time cards came from LensCrafters. It's not like Don just printed one up. They were in the system, but not the way they were supposed to be in the system. If Don was covering for the non-existent shift at the Hunt Valley store, he would have just logged into his account like normal and clocked in, and all the hours would have shown up on the same time card with the same employee ID number. And then I wondered if things were done wrong, then why wouldn't the Owings Mills manager have known that? I should point out, at this point in my investigation, I hadn't figured out yet that she was Don's stepmom, which made things even more confusing. I have this guy from Luxottica telling me the card is falsified. But the manager at Owings Mills didn't seem to think anything was wrong. And all I knew at that point was that was not his mom. That was a different manager. His mom was the manager at Hunt Valley. So I couldn't figure out how that could be until I figured out who that manager was. So by that point, it was at least in the realm of possibilities that Don's mom and stepmom would be covering for him. Which also, by the way, fit my profile. But how? So as you can imagine, once I reported all of this, the guilty crowd just came unglued, just like they will when they hear this one. They have all sorts of reasons why the time cards are perfectly normal. So I asked my audience. There were around a quarter million people listening. I asked for anyone who worked for LensCrafters in 1999 to reach out and explain to me how things worked. Dozens of them emailed me. I read several of them on the air. And 100% all of them confirmed exactly what the payroll guy from Luxottica told me. It didn't matter which store you were working in, you always logged in with the same credentials. Always. In fact, most of them told me that they themselves regularly filled in in other stores, and all the hours always showed up on a single time card with their single employee ID number. Every step of the way, Adnan's guilty trolls got angrier and angrier. Nothing was good enough. There was always some excuse. So then I finally had a woman on who was a manager at LensCrafters in 1999. I had her come on the show and explain things firsthand. 
And lo and behold, she also confirmed what everyone else was saying. There was no innocent explanation for the two time cards. That is not how the system worked. Something was wrong here. And then she explained how and when this could have happened. The only way she could see it being possible. She said that the only person who could modify or create a time card like this would be the manager. Managers had the ability to go into the system and add or subtract hours. They had this ability for legitimate reasons, like an employee left work and forgot to clock out or forgot to clock in or they clocked out and then the manager asked them to stick around and help with something. These types of things happen all the time, so the manager is able to go into the system and change things but they had to do it before payroll was processed. In this case, the pay period ended on Sunday, and if memory serves, she said that they had until Tuesday to make any changes. That's when payroll was submitted for checks to go out on Friday. And that bit is important. If all of these people are right, and that's how the system worked, and the only explanation for the two timesheets is that a manager created this time card after the fact, then that had to be done by January 19th. And that's the problem. Weirdly, Brett and Alice make it seem like this is just silly and preposterous, but in this scenario, we're trying to figure out if Don should be a suspect. And if his mother and stepmother colluded to create this fake time card, which would effectively create an alibi for him, they would have done it at a point when no one except the killer and their accomplices would have known Hay was murdered. And only the killer would have known that they needed an alibi at that point. Now, you can do with all of that whatever you want, but those are the facts. And remember, Brett and Alice's entire methodology in this series is to eliminate all possibilities other than Adnan killing Hay. They never prove to you that he did it. What they do is just try to convince you that it couldn't have been anyone else. So they need to convince you that any suspicions about Don are baseless. They call this work that I did, the stuff I just explained to you, the worst of true crime. They claim to know with 100% certainty that Don absolutely had nothing to do with Hayes' death. And to be clear, I'm not saying that he did have anything to do with Hayes' death. What I'm doing is laying out the reasons why I think he should have been and still should be further investigated. If Don is completely innocent, then these detectives did a terrible disservice to him. Because if he's innocent, then they could have cleared all this up a long time ago. But they didn't. But here's how Brett and Alice tried to disprove the entire premise that the time cards were falsified. First, they point out something that the private investigators who worked on the HBO documentary said in an interview. They said that the time card theory was debunked. And yes, they did say that. And that statement is patently false. It was not in any way debunked. They go on to explain why they think it was. They say that they spoke with several people involved with Luxottica's payroll, including the person who developed the software that was used at the time. And what they learned was that if someone went into the system to create this time card, it would have left a digital footprint. They could not do so without leaving a trace. And therefore, nothing wrong with the time cards. That is not in any way debunking the theory, not at all. If you listen to me back in 2015 and you're listening to me now, what I've been saying all along for all these years 
based on what everyone I interviewed told me, is that there would be a digital footprint of this change. Someone should be able to look into the system and see when those hours were put in, which is exactly what the creator of the software said. The problem is, no one ever did. No one has ever looked. Yurik sure as shit didn't, and no one noticed the problem until 15 years later when Susan Simpson finally caught it. And the defense doesn't have the power to get access to those records, and I don't even know if the records still exist at this point. The only thing that can be done is what I did. Interview people who used the system and find out what happened and how it worked. And interview people that worked for LensCrafters at the time. Remember what the manager told me. Don's mom, who was the only person who could have created that time card if it was faked, was no longer employed at LensCrafters after this incident. I wish I could have got a more direct answer out of her, but I can say that out there in the realm of possibilities is that after Yurik pushed for a second search to be done for the time records, an internal investigation was done, and there was a trace left. And maybe that's why Don's employment ended after all of her years of working there. That is something that could be investigated but it hasn't to this point. The idea that because we know there would be a digital trail left and no one in law enforcement ever looked for that trail equals debunking is just not accurate at all. And let's not forget the other problems with those two time cards. The hours combined would create overtime, but Don wasn't paid overtime. The shift he said he was covering for didn't exist. We have the schedule. And you can't clock out of the Hunt Valley store and clock into the Owings Mills store 23 minutes apart. I'm sorry, but there is obviously a big problem here. Brett and Alice only focus on the different employee ID numbers. They don't say a word about any of the things that I just mentioned. And in an attempt to explain the problem away, they start talking about some law about using social security numbers that passed in California in 2005. They ponder all these different ways that they think that the two time cards could have came to be. Brett even says that he spoke with several people connected to Luxottica's payroll department to try to figure this out. But when you listen, notice what he says. He never tells you what those people said. He just says that after speaking with them, here's what he thinks happened. They have all these hypothetical explanations for what happened here, but you know what they never do? And in fact, no one has ever been able to do. Produce one single employee of Luxottica or LensCrafters from 1999 who says that they had two different time cards and employee ID numbers when they worked at two different stores. None. They disregard everyone who has actual knowledge of the situation, including a LensCrafters manager from 1999, and replace all of that knowledge with their own bullshit explanations. In 2015, I came at this investigation with receipts, and those receipts still hold up today. What do they, or anyone else who likes to laugh this off and explain it away, have? Nothing. Nothing but a pathetic insistence that they have to be right, and Adnan has to be guilty. And therefore, all evidence to the contrary just has to be wrong. In summary, I agree with Brett and Alice. I don't believe Hay was killed by a random attacker or a serial killer. I don't think it was Alonzo Sellers, and I don't think it was Jay. I also don't think it was Bilal. 
in my opinion, and again, that's all this is, I believe there are two viable suspects based on the evidence, Adnan and Don. And one of them, by all accounts except for Jay, has a rock-solid alibi. And the other one has some pretty serious problems with his alibi. I'll just leave it at that. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com design, created, manages, and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kaywood Yomnick, and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. It doesn't cost you a penny, and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible. If you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod, and I can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>